Welcome to the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, where it's all about slashing your debt, slashing your taxes, and creating a liberated lifestyle. And now, your host, who met his wife while training for the 400 meters in Seattle and is eating gluten-free while lusting after bread, Dave Denniston. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping doctors like you slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, I am honored to have a return guest back with me. He was originally in Season 7, Episode 22. That came out in August of 2022, and Gosh, what what a lot has changed since then. Our particular guest today, he is the founding and managing member of Wellings Capital, which is a real estate private equity firm. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul Moore. How are you? Dave, it is so great to see you again, man. What an honor to be here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You know, just uh, work working awfully hard. You know, it's uh, I'm not not taking off a a lot of time this holiday season, so just just uh, enjoying the journey and the ride and keep learning, you know? Yep. You know, uh, entrepreneurs, people think, you know, they just must cruise through the holidays and relax, but it's not always that way, is it? No, no, no. At least not for me. Maybe some people do, but uh, I'm, I'm still growing. So, um, Paul, it's... it's uh, been a year, you know, of of a lot of things happening. Year plus since you came on, and gosh, uh, interest rates have risen a lot, and there's there's a lot of unsureness kind of out there. A lot of people talking recession. Certainly, the Ukraine thing has continued on from uh, when you first came on, and now things happening in Israel. So there's a lot of geopolitical talk out there, and se- seems like a a a different environment, you know, than than it was when you last came on. Just in terms of looking at at real estate, finding opportunities. Now, if I remember right from our last conversation, we were talking a lot about self storage. We were talking about mobile home parks, stuff like that. I'm I'm curious just to get your thoughts on on what's happened in real estate the last year plus. Well, it has been a wild ride for sure. Just kind of going back even more than that. Uh, in 2016, I wrote a book that was humbly titled uh, The Perfect Investment about multifamily. And by 2018, uh, I was blogging a lot and doing a lot of podcasts. And I concluded that maybe apartments, maybe multifamily is not the perfect investment. It's certainly not perfect if you have to overpay, if you have to over leverage. If you have to assume that trees grow to the sky or that rents would grow forever and that um, interest rates wouldn't rise and that short-term uh, floating rate debt would be uh, totally fine and safe. And so we've seen a lot of problems in all five of those arenas that have blossomed. I, in 2018 or 2019, I started you know, saying time out. Let's look carefully at this. And you know, I knew a lot of things could go wrong, and I predicted over and over in Bigger Pockets and other blogs and podcasts that things were going to go south. You know, one thing I didn't realize, Dave, and by the way, I never knew the timing, I never knew the severity. I, I, no one could really know that. But 
One thing I didn't realize was the serious impact of rate caps and rate cap reserves. And here's what I mean. So people get floating rate debt because they want to have lower interest rates, which would allow them to potentially outbid the competitors in an overly frothy market and would allow them to refinance or sell quickly, you know, as in one or two or three years with these rising values, this rising tide that lifted every boat would allow them to sell quickly without prepayment penalties or defeasance. And, you know, what I didn't realize was the severity of the, the, the impact that rate caps would have. So rate caps are, let's say somebody got a three and three quarter percent loan on a multifamily asset. And then they had a rate cap of, let's say, effective rate cap of 5%. So when rates jumped up from, let's say, three and three quarters up to around seven, they were capped at 5%. And I realized that was a limited period of time, but I didn't realize the impact of buying a new rate cap. And that would be something like this. Let's, let's go back about a year. Uh, several friends and acquaintances of mine who were in multifamily were telling me about their rate cap reserve. So the lender has the right to enforce a reserve for the next rate cap. In other words, the renewal of the rate cap in, let's say, one to two years. And some of these reserves were, you know, running $1,000, $2,000 a month on some very large assets. Well, those lenders mandated an increase from 1000 or two to sometimes seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a month in reserve to buy the replacement rate cap. How does somebody with, you know, leveled off or even declining rents, increasing vacancy, increasing operating costs, and, you know, already paying 50 to 60% more in interest payments than they planned and now have to eat a 70 or $80,000 a month rate cap reserve. Well, what happened and bringing us up to the last year, as you asked, what happened is a lot of folks are in trouble. A lot of people have stopped. A lot of multifamily operators have stopped distributions and some of them are calling for new capital to keep the asset afloat or buy a new rate cap. And some of them have already passed those stages and they're already in bigger trouble in potentially in foreclosure or worse with the bank. So that's what's happened in the last year in the commercial real estate world. There's all, all kinds of other things that have happened, but those have overshadowed a lot of them. Let's, let's break that down a little bit. So you, you, you started out talking about multifamily. I personally don't consider multifamily part of commercial. Are you putting it in there? Or? Yeah, I, I would consider, I mean, on a technical basis, a lender looks at everything, a multifamily from one to four units as residential multifamily, anything five units above as commercial multifamily. There's small commercial, which is five to about 80 units. And then there's large scale commercial multifamily, which would be from about 70 or 80 units and up where you could afford a, an internal property, an on-site property manager. Got it. Yeah, I, I generally have been talking about this from time to time on, on this podcast. What a lot of people don't realize is that the, the commercial world, multifamily, storage, office buildings, all of those kinds of things, they, they aren't on a fixed rate right? It's the, the vast, 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 vast majority are on an adjustable rate debt, like you were just saying. And 
it depends. I, I would think if, if I could separate out multifamily from office buildings, from storage as all different things in, in the office building side, depending upon the building, but many of them are losing tenants, right? And here in this building that I'm in, we, we've had a new person move in in a smaller space across the hall. There is construction going on above me, construction going on below me, and uh, all kinds of people having moved out, other people moving in. Other buildings, I'm sure, are more empty in the office space, which when you have declining rents on top of increasing debt, as you're saying, I mean, that's that definitely doesn't seem good. Yeah, it's 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 deadly. And the reason I like to talk about multifamily is the people I talk to, the investors I talk to, you know, a lot of them doctors, dentists, IT people, most of them haven't invested in office unless they're in a REIT. Um, most, but almost everybody I talk to, and we have like about 800 investors at our company, almost every one of them have invested in multifamily or are currently doing so. So what do you make of it having definitely trumped, uh, championed, you know, the multifamily space um, in particular, Um, like were, is it tough having these conversations? Because I'm sure maybe in some cases you've been able to sell out or the operators have been able to sell out of some buildings, others haven't been sold. So what's, I don't need to just talk about specific buildings, but just in general, you know, what, what's that like? You know, Dave, you mentioned that the vast majority are on uh, floating rate debt, but we've actually been able to avoid that. I can't talk about a specific fund, but I can tell you in general, our funds have about, you know, 20% of the assets perhaps in cash. And then, you know, something like 65 to 80% in fixed rate debt, typically, you know, let's say 70% in fixed rate debt. And that would mean that leaving a very small portion that have floating rate debt. And so we haven't really been affected and we haven't had to have those hard conversations. But I have quite a few friends, quite a few folks in my mastermind that are having those conversations with investors. And I imagine it's really tough. I, I know that they've been saying things like, well, don't forget you made millions of dollars, you know, collectively from this strategy over the last eight or nine years. And now it's, you know, it's turned against us. I agree. But the net, you're still way ahead. I don't think that makes investors feel great, but that's the kind of conversations they're having from what I've heard. Interesting. Interesting. So as, as we look going forward, I have to imagine, hey, if things are going on fire sale, that can lead to opportunity too, right? I mean, if it's, it's like the 2008 crisis. You know, if you're able to buy residential real estate in 2009, 2010, you know, the decade later, you're looking pretty sweet, you know? So what, what, what do you make of that in, if we, as we look at office, as we look at multifamily, as we look at, at self-storage? Yeah, I... I have a pessimistic view. So when COVID started, I scrambled to try to pull together a distressed asset fund. And I researched all I could about that. I studied Howard Marks even more than I usually do. And he's from Oak Tree Capital Management. And um, of course, that didn't come to fruition. Quite the contrary. Things took off again. 
for some reason, I, I just got a pessimistic view this time. The demand for housing is so, the demand and supply are so out of balance in favor of, you know, the demand is so much higher than the supply in single family and multifamily. And then I can't prove that that's true in every other asset type we've talked about, but it, it just seems like it's not, there's not going to be bargain basement deals. I mean, in 2008, I know people could buy stuff at even 50, even 60% off what it had sold for, you know, two, a few years before. I just don't see that happening this time, but there certainly are deals. A friend of mine sold a deal for what he believed was 20 or 25% higher than it should ever have sold for on its best day up to that date, up to that point. And now a year and a half later, he's got brokers calling him back from at least one, possibly two or three assets, begging him to buy those assets back at the level of the debt. In other words, just to make the lender whole. That means they basically already gave up on getting any equity back. So there are deals. But he said no to those deals. He said those weren't even even at that lower level, which was, let's say, 73% of what he sold it for. He's saying that's way too much. So is that a bargain basement deal? Some people would say yes. He would the, the buyer, the potential buyer in this case, would say no. Now, do you think... Is, is there just not enough of them coming that enough people are able to work with their lenders that it's, it's, there's not enough stress in the system, you know, or uh, is this maybe, I mean, you think about the timing, if most arms were done in this case, not arms, but uh, floating rate dead, if they were done five, if they're five to seven years, I believe is pretty typical. I mean, maybe this might be another two or three years away before this could be a thing. What do you think? Supposedly, Dave, from a chart I saw, the, um, the bottom, the, in other words, the worst months of this are this month and next month as we record this in very late 2023. However, there are still some that are going to, you know, be in trouble, you know, one, two, three years from now. The question is not necessarily do they make it to the end date, or does the end date even matter if they can't survive already? I mean, some of them can't even stay afloat now. And if their capital calls aren't working and they're not getting enough capital to replace the rate cap or, you know, even stay in business, are they even going to make it to their three or four or five year exit? I don't know. I do think there are hundreds of billions of dollars sitting on the sideline from the likes of Howard Marks, Oak Tree Capital, some REITs some distressed asset funds that are going to pounce on the best deals. But, you know, like in the reports out of New York, San Francisco, uh, different places in Texas are that there are a lot of deals about to hit the market. One other factor in this time that's different from 2008 is I've widely heard that the lenders are much more willing to work with the owners, the borrowers this time around than they were in 2008. 2008 and 10. Interesting. Well, it, it sounds like, you know, we're, we're, as many people have forecasted that maybe we have a soft landing, you know, this, this certainly could impact um, banks being willing to lend, you know, which I'm sure we're probably already starting to feel that to a degree, particularly smaller bank. Um, with all this in mind, you having talked about some of these other asset classes in the past 
few years, you know, what you being primarily someone that deals with investors and investing into real estate and doing different kinds, you've shifted over the years. How, how are you looking at the next year to two years in terms of what, what you're wanting to uh, help people invest into? Yeah. Generally, we take a stance that we're going to do the same things. We're trying to hit singles and doubles, and we're going to do the same thing in a bad economy and a good economy, which is what Warren Buffett and Howard Marks and Charlie Munger have taught us. You know, just just stay on the same strategy. Always be looking for value. You know, uh, you know, price is what you pay. Value is what you get. Look for outsized, uh, you know, intrinsic value in good times and bad. That's our stance. However, an opportunity has arisen that we didn't expect in the realm of preferred equity. Now, preferred equity, imagine a capital stack, you know, vertical stack. At the bottom, you've got debt, and that debt may be 50, 60, 70 percent. On the top of the stack, you've got equity, uh, and that might be the, the rest. So if it was 60 percent debt, 40 percent equity. Um, in normal times that would be the capital stack and that's most of the deals we've been a part of over the years we've been on the equity part of that stack now the equity the debt on the bottom means their first in repayment order their first priority they have a lien they can foreclose the equity on the other hand doesn't get necessarily a contractual rate of return like the debt they might have a pref, a preferred hurdle, but that's not of contractual rate, certainly. And then they have, but they get all the upside. And so in good years, all the upside was a whole lot of money. In bad years, in downtimes and uncertainty, that equity, the value of the equity is uncertain. It's uncertain whether you'll even get it back, far less make a profit. And so preferred equity plugs a hole in the middle of that capital stack. If you're familiar with mezzanine debt, it's somewhat similar. It's in a similar place in the stack. So let's just say an operator, a syndicator was going to plan to get 70% debt and raise 30% equity. But now they're, they only, the, the lender says, nope, we're not going to give you 70%. We're only going to give you 55 and let's say instead of being able to raise the 45% equity they needed to, they only raised 25% equity. So now they have, what did I say, 55% debt, 25% equity. They've got 20% oh, 20 gap to fill. That gap can be filled by preferred equity. Preferred equity doesn't have a lien. Like debt has a lien, it doesn't. But it does, have, it does have a contractual repayment stream right out of the gate. So, And unlike debt, it has an upside, like, which is like equity. In other words, it has maybe 7, 8, 9, 10% cash flow, which would be like an interest payment similar to debt. But then on top of that, it has a compounding uh, paid in kind, if you will, or a compounding equity that will happen at the time of refinance or sale. And that equity amount might be another six, seven, eight percent. So a lot of deals that are out there right now in the under five million dollar range we've seen are, you know, throwing off eight, nine, or ten percent current pay, and then another six, seven, or even eight percent upside, getting to a total coupon of fifteen to eighteen percent. 
Let's take a pause for a second here and go to our commercial break. I hear all the time from physicians. I wish I learned all this financial stuff in medical school. Yet there doesn't seem to be enough time and the year is now almost at a close. Wouldn't it be great if you could snag a copy of some resource that just made it simple and easy? My friends, as you know, I am committed to increasing your financial knowledge. I am committed to help guide you through the confusing maze of financial decisions with awesome resources that will actually help you. That's why through the end of the year, I have a very special offer for you. You can get a free copy of my ultimate year-end planning checklist. Yep. That's right, free resource right here to help you close out the year. It's pretty much everything you need to think about as this year wraps up. I know the last thing that any of us want to do is be stuck with a big tax bill or forget something that's so easy to do and you just could have done it in a short period of time. So if that's you, text the word checklist, C-H-E-C-K-L-I-S-T to this phone number, 833 343-2986 to pick up your free copy. Don't let this podcast be like other ones where you've heard some awesome information. You get some new ideas, but you don't actually get anything completed. To snag your copy, text CHECKLIST to 833-343-2986. Again, text CHECKLIST to 833-343-2986. Now, back to the show. The attractiveness of preferreds being that it's it's the pickle in the middle. It's not it's in the middle of the sandwich, if you will, the the capital sandwich with equity at the top, debt at the bottom. It's it, you don't you don't have the security of the collateral like you do if you are a debt holder, a senior debt holder in particular. You don't have the upside that you do with just being pure equity and and owning a piece of it but you can mix the two together essentially and and get some of both you know where you you have more risk in terms of relative to debt people but because if if worst case scenario we go through some of what you were just talking about with some assets uh, then then you could lose your investment entirely like a, a, a stockholder would although in priority you're you're in a better position than they are how why do you think this is an attractive investment where you have some upside but potentially you know unlimited downside on it yeah so you've got some upside unlike equity which has unlimited upside this is capped at let's say like I gave you an example, 16%, just as an example. One thing that's uh, attractive about it right now is we, because some of these operators are really eager to get this, they will sign away, you know, they'll sign for sale rights, they'll sign management control rights, they'll sign, uh, they'll do personal guarantees. I mean, the question, you know, I'd have for a, a lender is, would you rather have a non-recourse loan that just has a chance of getting that property back, or would you rather have a, you know, the recourse on an individual that has verified, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars in net worth? And so there is a value to that. As far as, you know, the, the question of losing value, it certainly could. 
one thing we do is we take, we look very carefully at the operator. We look very carefully at the asset. We fly out and see it. We talk to previous owners. We do NOI audits uh, to make sure that, you know, the net operating income is where they say it is, that there's no, you know, there's no, nothing going on weird with the books. Uh, we go to great lengths to protect ourselves. I think the attractiveness right now is that a lot of the equity proposals out there are only really penciling at 9 or 10 or 11%. So if you can get a safer place in the capital stack and get a projected or targeted, I should say, 16% return, that has a lot of appeal. What what kind of assets you know are are you looking at in this case? Because the underlying asset still matters, right? You don't just want to get preferred equity on every single building on the street, right? You still got to be choosy about how the kind of assets, who you're doing it with, stuff like that. Yeah, the majority of deals we're seeing right now, Dave, are multifamily. So a lot of them multifamily. We we we've seen a single family asset portfolio. We've seen a retail. Uh, retail, by the way, is really crushing it in a lot of arenas. I mean, open-air shopping centers, especially where they have the offhand, secondhand, like the stores like TJ Maxx, Burlington, Ross, etc. Those guys are crushing it right now. And so we're seeing it in all those types of assets. We've seen, multi, we've seen self-storage deals and we've seen mobile home park deals, but over 90% of what we see in, like I said, our apartments. Interesting. So still in the apartment space, just not on the equity side, essentially, is kind of what what you've shifted to. So does that help to leverage your current and past partnerships where you've partnered with people on on various things? You know, how how does that play into it? You know, we would have thought we, we, you know, could have provided pref equity for some of our past partners, but uh, honestly, none of them needed it yet. So we're, you know, we're out there researching new potential partnerships to provide preferred equity to. We have offered it to our current partners, but nobody's taken us up on it yet, which is great with us because that tells me they're in great shape and they they don't need, you know, what is very expensive capital. Uh, And if they don't need us, that's that's great news. Somebody that needs us, it's not necessarily bad news. It's just, it's not as, you know, it's better to, to have all cash right now. So one of our favorite operators is buying all the assets he's he's buying for all cash, and then he's turning around, and you know getting them stabilized, bringing the value way up, and then getting a loan later, which is we think is great. One of the reasons these operators like pref equity, by the way, there's there's rescue capital, there's development pref equity, and then there's value add acquisition pref equity, and we're mainly dealing in that last one. We have no interest in trying to go in and at, at, in the 11th hour and try to rescue an asset that's about to fail. Is the reason people are the the operators wanting to partner with you guys on this? Is that because the bank essentially is requiring more money, more equity, and they just don't have the equity? Or you know why why would someone be interested in that? Yeah, it's that gap like we talked about before. The bank's coming in lower and the equity's coming in slower. And so there's it's leaving that gap. But another thing that's a real benefit to the operator is they can, you know, take us out anytime. So a lot of these are written with a projected timeline of two to three years. But if they can improve the asset dramatically and let's say rates are leveled off or coming down hopefully in the next few years, 
they can potentially refinance us out. And if they, you know, if they bring out, if they bring debt to do that, it'll, all the common equity people will benefit by getting that piece of ownership. If they bring their own personal cash as a GP, they're going to buy that, let's say 20% slug. So that's great for them to get an increase in ownership. And if it's through, if it's through a capital call, which I would see is super unlikely, but if it was through a capital call, then all the investors who participate in that capital call would get a bigger piece of our asset that's performing well. So even though we're expensive, this prep equity is expensive, they can take us out pretty soon is kind of the thing that I think that these operators love. Got it. Is, is that your hope? You know, are you hoping that best case scenario that essentially it goes full cycle on it because it's, I guess, some more insurity than normal, right? Just in terms of you don't know how long it's going to take to get investors' money back. Right. I think we're happy either way. I mean, we are. if we get the money back in, say, year two, we're a longer-term fund. And so if we get the money back in year two, we'll probably take it and reinvest it back in different, you know, new assets. And Dave, you know, like we talked about a few minutes ago, I don't think that there's going to be bargain basement deals like 2010. But if there are, those are often lagging the, you know, the, the, let's say the heart of the recession by two to three years. So if we get this money back in two to three years, you know, hey, we might be really well positioned to pick up some of those potential acquisitions at a lower price. So that's, that's, that's that suits us just fine. Interesting. Well, Paul, we, we've touched on a lot, my friend, a lot of, lot of lingo, I think, for many of us to, to get familiar with. Uh, what else do you think we should be talking about in our conversation today? You know, have you had, we've had a lot of people ask us about RV parks. Have you heard much about that? No, no, not much at all. Tell, tell us about it. Well, there's been a huge increase in demand for the acquisition of RVs and therefore the demand on RV parks since COVID. Uh, in fact, uh, 26% of the campers were new to camping, RV camping, during the pandemic, and just in the first year of the pandemic, in fact. The uh, online searches for RV parks have doubled over the last several years. And one, there's a couple big factors here. One is the fact that for the first time in history, a lot of people can work from home that never could before, or they can work remotely. Those same people often realize that their life in Manhattan, working for the man, as they say, was not as fulfilling as they wished. Their families were suffering, and they, they feel like they want to get out there, and you know they want to hit the road. So they can, and they do. And a lot of them do that in an RV. Well, so you've got the remote work revolution, but you've got another factor that's pretty powerful. Obviously, you know, 18 years ago, nobody had ever heard of the sharing economy, Airbnb, Uber. But those things have, you know, Airbnb and Uber have become nouns now, you know, that sort of, you know, like Kleenex is for tissue, right? And so um, RV sharing is a huge factor now that has increased the demand for RV parks. Here's what I mean. A lot of RVs sit idle about 49 to 50 weeks a year. Well, now those owners can turn those uh, idle RV weeks into rolling, basically rolling rental units. 
and uh, they can rent those out. And a lot of people like me who don't who want to go on an hour RV a week or two a year, but no, I don't want the maintenance and hassle and expense and depreciation. I'd rather rent one than buy one. Well, I mean, if that RV that was sitting idle 49 weeks a year now goes into service 10 or 20 more weeks a year, that's going to put incredible demand on RV parks that are already full. And so that's, this is some of the reasons we really like RV parks. And um, we could talk more about that, but I just want to kind of wet your audience's whistle with the fact that, you know, this is something that people really should be looking at. I would imagine that just in general, RV parks, I mean, really the majority of the cost is the land itself, clearing the land, adding in utilities, potentially, you know, into it. It's not as capital intensive as building a new office building or a new storage facility or those kinds of things. Is that true? You know, there are four types of RV parks. One is the kind of like by the highway type that's light on amenities. And I would say that's true for those. A second type is, you know, like around a lake or a resort area where they put in a deck and those RVs stay for decades. Not sure about that one. A third type is workforce. And a fourth type is destination parks. Now, destination parks can either be near a destination like Branson, Missouri or Zion National Park or it can be a destination within itself. And for those that are, you would not believe the ratio of capital expense to land. It is very, very high. As an example, we have invested in a few RV parks that have a, uh, the, the expense of buying the park was in the neighborhood of two to $4 million. The capital, all in capital budget, once they're completely built out has been between 18 and 20 million dollars you know adding water parks that's that's not small numbers i know so they were adding you know water parks fishing and swimming lakes you know limited food service uh human foosball putt-putt golf golf cart rentals uh wedding venue cabins glamping units hay rides face painting gem mining, it goes on and on and on, as well as internet, great cell service, all those things that are important to what to my thesis there of people working remotely. So the expense all in for some of the parks is surprisingly high. But again, that's only a certain portion of those parks. Interesting. Huh. And how would that cost compare to like if someone's building a self-storage facility from the ground up? You know, let's 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 not say a, a urban one, but you know, on on the fringes, kind of a, a thing. Typical self storage facility. You know, let's say it has some climate controlled, and then some oh, a lot of drive up storage might be between five and fifteen million. So. So that's that's more expensive than yeah. a self storage facility. Interesting. Yeah, and then some of those urban four-story ones might be in the 20 to $25 million range. But, I mean, that would be even on the high side. So that's, that's fascinating. That's actually more expensive, more capital needs in uh, the, the high-end RV park. Here's what's crazy. That's, not only, that's true. But in addition to that, the labor to man a, let's say, a 1,000-unit self-storage facility might be, for example, three people. But in one of these similarly priced RV parks, let's say a $20 million RV park, 
it could take over a hundred people to man it in the height of the season. So it's a management intensive operation. All right, Paul. Well, as, as we wrap up for today, any, any closing thoughts you want to leave with us? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's, it's really great to be here again. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity, Dave. You're welcome. And if people want to check out what you're doing, they want to learn more about preferred equity or RV parks, where can they find you? Uh, they can find me at wellingscapital.com slash resources. And that would be a place where people can go and get a free special report on RV park investing, self-storage, mobile home parks. They can get access to my books on apartment or self-storage investing and more. Wellingscapital.com slash resources. Beautiful. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Thanks, Dave. Great to be here again. Hope to see you again in the future. All right, my friends, that wraps up another episode of the Freedom Formula for Physicians podcast. Remember, as always, slash your debt, slash your taxes, and live a liberated lifestyle. Well, thank you, my friends, so much for listening to the last podcast. I am pleased to announce that I am now a completely independent financial advisor, where to the point now I can really integrate my financial planning practice with this podcast. If you might be looking for help, if you have found any of our information here interesting or relevant and you're looking for a second opinion, I'm making myself available for 30-minute strategy sessions. And if you want to arrange a time to meet with me to discuss your situation and see if we might be a good fit for one another, I'd like you to call our office and speak with Kyla. Our phone number is 612-284-2409. Again, that's 612-284-2409. And I look forward to helping you with your financial situation. And now for some lovely legal disclosures required by our lawyer friends. Investment advice is only offered in jurisdictions where Centurion Financial Strategies, LLC, Centurion is appropriately registered or exempt from registration. Our Form ADV Part 2 brochure can be obtained free of charge at advisorinfo.sec.gov by searching for our firm name or its unique CRD number, which is 316-454. This podcast is not a solicitation to provide advisory services in any jurisdiction in which we are not appropriately registered or excluded. The information, statements, and opinions contained in this podcast have been obtained from or are based on information obtained from sources which we believe to be reliable, but we do not warrant or guarantee the timeliness or accuracy of such information. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as personalized investment, tax, or legal advice. Opinions expressed by any guest are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the firm's views. You should carefully consider your own financial circumstances and needs prior to making any investment in securities or purchasing any insurance products. As always, past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing in securities or really anything else involves the risk of loss. If by some chance in this particular podcast I mentioned insurance products, insurance products are backed by the financial strength and claims paying ability of an issuing insurance company. They may be subject to restrictions, limitations, and early withdrawal fees, which vary by issue. You should always consider the charges, risks, expenses, and investment objective of any insurance products before entering a contract. 
And that, my friends, wraps it up. Wish you all the best. Feel free to contact us with any info at www.daviddeniston.com. Thank you so much and have a good one. Bye-bye.